0: I want you to imagine a Sunday morning. I know that's tough, okay? Sunday morning, and you're at a church. It's really tough. I'm stretching your imaginations this morning. And at that church, there are two visitors that morning. Two Marine veterans, both veterans of the war in Iraq. They don't know each other. They just happen to come together. The, the whole morning, they don't really bump into each other. It's, it's not so much about them running into each other. It's about their relationship with that church. They're visitors. They've never been there before. And so they spend the whole morning, and they're greeted warmly. They interact with people. They're offered a cup of coffee. They're offered this really cool travel mug with really these goodies in it. It's wonderful. They love it. They have a great time. They like the worship. They like the sermon. Everything is just a great experience. One of them, after service, has an interaction out in the foyer. He meets somebody in the church who was also a veteran of the war in Iraq. And they sit down, and they share a cup of coffee, and they talk about their experience. The other one doesn't have that. It's not that somebody ignored him. It it just didn't happen. The next week, only one of those people returns. Who do you think it would be and why? It would be the one that sat down and had the cup of coffee, right? right? Why? Because that person made a connection. They left that place saying, there's somebody there that understands something about what I've gone through. It might not have been identical but they understand something. It's not like the other person had a horrible experience, but maybe they just didn't quite make that connection with somebody. This here is our life rope. Okay, This represents your life, my life, anybody's life. Over here we have our birth. Right here is our present. This is what's going on in our life right now. This is our future, and this is where we end up. At some point, we're going to die. So here's our life rope. And all along the way, we have experiences, things that impact who we are, our identity, and the ways that we interact with other people. So in the past, you might have, growing up, maybe you played a a specific sport, and you were really big into sports. And so you just love sports, and that's shaped part of who you are. Maybe you got a certain job out of college or out of high school, and and that job shaped who you are today. At some point along the way, maybe you got married, had kids. It's all part of your past that defines, in a big way, who you are today, where you were born, where you grew up. Maybe at some point in the past, you had a loved one pass away, a father, a mother, a brother, sister, a spouse. And all of those things go together. And I'm not saying that you are the sum total of those things, but they do impact us in some way, shape, or form. This is the present. Maybe you have things going on in your life right now. Maybe you're you're going through a particularly difficult time. Maybe you're going through just a wonderful time. Everything's smooth sailing and it's great. Maybe you're going through a major life change right now. This is the future. This one's a little tougher, because really the thing that defines our future is that we don't know. We don't really know what's coming. We don't know what's going to happen between now and when we pass away. But maybe you're in a situation that you do have some things coming up and and they impact you now. Maybe you're in college and you're going to graduate soon or in high school and you're going to graduate and that's coming in the not-too-distant future and that defines something about who you are. Maybe you're going to be getting married or having a child or retiring at some point and you're looking forward to that and that thing in the future impacts who you are. Certainly we all have that aspect of we know we're going to face our own death at some point, someday, that's in our future. We know that. We can't escape it. These experiences also impact our relationship with others. As I walk around with my life rope and you have your life rope, there will be times that we get together and we'll share a story of, hey, when I was five years old, my dog died. I never had a dog, so he never died. But if if that happened, you go, oh, yeah, me too. And, And suddenly there's that little bit of a connection between my rope and yours. Maybe it's something deeper and more profound. We have those things that overlap between our ropes, and they form that that sense of belonging, this bond that we have between shared experiences from our past, our present, or maybe even our future. Now, I think there's two things that impact how much of a bond or how deep of a bond that could be. One is the number of things. If we have a lot of things in common, a lot of points on our rope that overlap, we can get together and we have a lot to talk about. Maybe we went to the same school, had the same job, had the same hobbies, whatever it is. A lot of things that overlap. The other thing that I think forms a really deep bond between people is when there was something significant, maybe one thing that deeply impacted our own identity that we share with somebody else. Maybe it was a sickness, an illness that you go through. I've shared before about my trouble with my lungs, an issue I was, I was born with and I'll have the rest of my life, where my lungs just spontaneously pop like a balloon. It's awesome. <laughs> and I've met, I think in my life, two people, maybe three, that have, it's a very rare thing. And, I, and when I meet these people, it's like, really, you two? This thing that is so deep and meaningful and impactful to my identity, I have in common with just a handful of people. Maybe you meet somebody who lost a parent when they were young, like you did. You can sit down and talk about that. Maybe you meet somebody that went to a, a foreign country like you did, and it was this deep, impactful thing. You might have nothing else in common with them, but because it was such a deep, meaningful thing for you, you can sit down and talk about that. Now, what does this mean for a church? Because here's the problem with this. We tend to bond or share experience with people that are like us. We tend to gravitate toward people that are like us, that have had experiences like us, that come from a background that are like us. A while ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. made a statement. He said the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most divided time in America. Why? Because we gather with people who are like us. So what are we to do about that as a church? Should we fight it? Is it okay that we just gather with people that are like us? Is it it okay that we tend to overemphasize sameness in the church? My answer to that question might actually surprise you. Because my answer is yes. It is okay that we emphasize sameness. Now before you run me out of the town as a racist and a bigot, listen to me for a second, okay? I came to that answer through the book of Ephesians. In fact, I think our problem is not that we emphasize sameness, but that we don't emphasize it enough. I think our divisions are because we don't understand the sameness we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today, our new identity in Christ. Open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Because I believe that if we can understand the sameness that we have in Christ, which is what we're going to look at, it overcomes all the other divisions. That's where we need to focus. That's what we need to celebrate. That's what we need to emphasize in the church and in our lives. So let me read for us Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1-10. through 10. That's what we're going to look at today. Just to set it before us. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. I want to walk through this And I want to emphasize this concept of our new identity in Christ. And let's start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. And just look at the first three verses. This forms Paul's intro to the letter. And it's easy to skip over this, but there's a few key things. Look at the way Paul introduces himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That tells you something about how Paul sees his identity. An apostle was one sent on a mission. That's what the word means. Once sent on a mission, particularly with a message. Paul's message was that Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, has died and offers salvation to all who will believe. And specifically, his message, his mission, was to take that to the Gentiles. People that were not Jewish. People that, as a Jewish rabbi, as a Jewish Pharisee, Paul hated until he came to know Jesus Christ. They were his enemies. And now he sent to them to share with them the good news of salvation. And he understood this as his mission, as his identity. In Acts chapter 18, verse 19, Paul visits Ephesus for the first time, and he's just there for a little bit of time. Could have been days or weeks, we're not really sure. And he leaves behind, at that visit, he leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila, a couple. And either Paul or Priscilla and Aquila, we're not sure who or how, somebody planted a church around that time. He goes on to Jerusalem. Eventually, he comes back on his third missionary journey. In Acts chapter 19, we learn that he spends about three years in Ephesus. As far as we can tell, it's the longest place he spent anywhere on his missionary journeys. Every day, teaching them, preaching to them, opening God's word, explaining who Jesus Christ is, developing and building that church. So he knows these people he's writing to. And so he says something about their identity here to God's, Holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. If somebody was to write you a letter, would they call you holy? Now you might answer that question by looking at your life and looking at your habits and your background and and where you are with Christ and how many times a day you read your Bible or pray, and you might say, No, that doesn't, that's that's not me. Some translations have saints. That's what the word means. The holy saints. We use that phrase, unfortunately, I think the Catholic Church has taken that phrase and kind of destroyed it and made it mean something that it's not. Because in Scripture, it applies to everyone who is in Christ. If you hear that word holy and you are a Christian, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, and you say that doesn't apply to you, I'm going to tell you something. This may seem a little harsh. You failed to realize who you are in Christ. Paul doesn't write to them and call them holy because they're perfect people. Just the opposite. They've got their own issues. But he knows they're holy because they've been saved by Christ. And that's how God sees them in Christ. Because he's getting at their identity in Christ. And so he says for them, grace and peace. And these two words, they're not just a common greeting. They are, but they're more than that to Paul. The terms grace and peace will come up again and again throughout the book of Ephesians. Now look at verse 3. He really starts into the heart of the letter here. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is our identity as Christians. We are blessed in the heavenly realms by every spiritual blessing in Christ. He says we're blessed by God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us something about who this blessing is coming from. And he ties into the Old Testament history as God, as the creator of the world, the sustainer of all things, God who reached into history and grabbed a hold of these people. We call them Israel, and he worked in and through them, and he had a plan of salvation. He says, that God. And he says, but he didn't stop there. The God that loved us so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross in our place. That God is the God who wants to bless us and is and has been blessing us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We have a God that loves to bless us. But we take that phrase and we dumb it down. And people have made tons of money selling books and making megachurches off of dumbing that phrase down and saying, well, God wants to bless you by making you rich. Oh, he wants to do so much greater than that because God doesn't need your money. Oh, he wants to bless you by just keeping you healthy all the time. Well, he wants you to be healthy, but not the way we think. God's blessing is not according to our standard in the world. Look at what he says. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms. I think we've misunderstood this because we take that to say one day, someday, when you get to heaven, when you die and you go to heaven, oh, it's going to be great. And that's true. But that's not what he's talking about here. For Paul, there is always this coexistence of two kingdoms. God's heavenly kingdom and the sinful kingdom of this world that we live in. God's heavenly kingdom is the place of his perfect rule, his perfect authority, untouched by sin. And it is there that all of these blessings are kept for us. It is there that they are made secure, untouched by our lives, untouched by the things of this world, that nothing can change. They're not corruptible. They don't change on a whim. They don't change with whoever's in the White House. They are always eternally present in the heavenly realms. So what is it we've received? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. A spiritual blessing is something that depends upon God. It is something that is from God, not dependent on us. But these blessings are, and this is key, they're in Christ. In Christ. God wants to bless us. And the primary way he does that is by plucking us out of our situation and bringing us in to Jesus Christ. Now let me help you to understand that. And we'll get to this rope now. See, I said this was our life rope. Birth, present, death. This is Christ's life rope. A little bit bigger. Okay? And, and I want you to picture that that end goes on for eternity that way. And this end goes on. Oh, I just dropped my life. Okay. And this end goes on for eternity that way. When you are saved, God doesn't just take your life and say, oh, I'm going to pour some blessings into it. He takes our lives. And he intertwines it in Christ. So that our life becomes the life of Christ. The blessings that Christ has becomes our blessings. His past becomes our past. His future becomes our future. His present becomes our present. He doesn't just make us a little bit better. He makes us totally new. Now listen to the blessings that he talks about. He's going to talk about the past blessings that we have in Christ. Look at verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. There's the first past blessing. We are chosen by God to be holy and blameless through Jesus Christ. Christians love to debate this phrase. What does it mean that he chose us? I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of what it means, but I do want to say this. If your theology... Contradicts the fact that he did choose at some point, and it doesn't include this language, it's wrong. Somehow, some way, God chose in eternity past, completely not dependent upon us before we ever existed. He knew and he chose, you will be saved through Jesus Christ. It's what the passage says. There's no way around it. Because for Paul. We don't get to stand up and say, look at me, I'm saved. Look at all I did. I saved myself. He says, no, you've got to look to God and say, God saved me. I didn't do it myself. He did it. I wasn't there in eternity past when he made that choice. He did it. We are chosen. But we're chosen for a purpose to be holy and blameless, to stand unashamed in the presence of an all-holy God. I don't even think we can... Begin to imagine what that would be like. And God says that was his choice all the way back in eternity for that to be true for us in Jesus Christ. It also says he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption. Not only did he make a choice, but he made a plan to carry out that choice. That's what predestined means. He made choices all along the way to lead to the moment when you would accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and to plan for that moment into eternity future for you to be with him forever. He laid out that path because he's God. He can do that. And he did this through love. And he predestined us for adoption to sonship. In the Roman world, if you're a father and you go out and you adopt a son, that son becomes... Fully your child. Now, I think, I believe that's true, should be true of today as well. But there's a key difference. You see, in the Roman world, to have somebody be a fully, uh, legally your son meant that person was your heir. Your estate became their estate. Your status in the culture and the society became theirs. Their future was completely wrapped up in who their father was. So when you adopted somebody, you're saying all that is mine becomes yours. All of it. That's what God has planned for all who are in Jesus Christ. Think about that. The God of the universe saying, all that is mine is now yours because I've adopted you as my child. Men, women, black, white, whatever ethnicity, whatever background, we are saved through Jesus Christ, predestined for adoption. I want to help you to put this in perspective you see, from here to here, our present to our birth, that's what we look at as our past. But in Christ, it goes so much longer. So, so I did a little bit of math to help you understand, to do some scale to my illustration here, okay? So let's imagine this rope not only goes out that door, but it goes to Los Angeles. And then from Los Angeles, it goes to Sydney, Australia. From Sydney, it goes out of the solar system. It comes back, wraps around Jupiter five times, goes to the sun another ten times, and then goes to the closest galaxy, which, according to my research, is about 70,000 light years away. So you compare that with my little rope here. And now, get this, all of that distance that I just described to you of this really incredibly, insanely long rope, that is just a speck on the eternity of Jesus Christ's path. Put that into perspective. For that length of time, God has been working for every single moment to bring you to himself. That's your past. This little bit that we say defines us in and of ourselves, sure, they affect us, they influence us, but this is not the sum total of who we are. In Christ, we get all the past that Christ has been applied to But let's not stop there. Let's look at the present. Look at verse 6. He says, To the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. What defines us right now as people in our present is not what's going on in our life right now. It's the fact that God has poured out his grace upon us through Jesus Christ. Lavish. I almost feel like in this passage, Paul is struggling for words to describe how great God's grace is. He uses words like lavish, abundantly beyond what we can ever ask or imagine. Grace is something that is undeserved and yet given to us anyway. That's the love that God has for us. It's a key theme in grace. In Ephesians 2.5 and and 2.8, we're saved by grace. Later on in the passage that we look at today, you'll see that uh, we have redemption and forgiveness through grace. In chapter 3, Paul describes his missionary call as being defined by God's grace and sustained by God's grace. And so Paul says, everything that we are right now, we are because God has poured out his grace upon us through Jesus Christ. And so he gets all the credit. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Not look how far we've come. (laughs) Not look how far we've come. Look how far God has come to bring us to this point. He gets all the praise. And it says he, he's freely given us this in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. Here's another great Roman word. Imagine you go into the marketplace, downtown Rochester. You'll probably see some, some plants, maybe some meat, maybe some vegetables or, or fruit. And, and you could pick whatever you want. Now imagine you go into a Roman marketplace and you see all those things. but You also see a, a cage off in the corner with men and women in it and children. And you can buy them too. Because they're slaves. And if you wanted to set one of them free, you would have to redeem them. That's what the word means. You would have to pay the price for their slavery and then set them free. And what this passage is saying is that our present is defined by the fact that God looked into our life and our slavery to sin when we were lost and helpless and could do nothing to free ourselves. And he said, I will pay for you. And the price will be the death of my son bought you out of slavery. Now, a slave in general isn't necessarily at fault for their enslavement. In the Roman world, sometimes they could have gotten in trouble and sold themselves into slavery, but in general, most slaves are victims. Not only for redemption, but the forgiveness of sins. And this word here is more of a legal word. It's a criminal who's on trial. They are guilty. They have done something wrong, and the price for their guilt must be paid. It could be a debt that's owed. It could be a punishment that they have to take because of what they have done. So God looks into the courtroom of our life, and he says, you are enemies of mine. By being a sinner, you have lived in rebellion against the all-holy king of the universe, and we are guilty of that. And God looks down, and he says, I will pay that price, too. I will pay the price of your guilt by taking all of that punishment, all of that wrath, and putting it upon my son, Jesus Christ, and he'll take it for you. That's what defines our present in Jesus Christ. So here's our present identity. We are saved by God's incredible, abundant grace, bought from slavery, out of sin, saved from the guilt and punishment that we deserve. But he doesn't stop there. Oh no, the blessings keep going. Let's look at the future blessings in verses 9 and 10. He says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And we actually have to back up to the end of verse 8 there. Because he says he's done all this and is doing all this with all wisdom and understanding. So here's how I picture this. This helps me to understand these big concepts. I picture God like, like somebody in his study, and he's working on something. And, and he's working on a plan. And, and he doesn't just put up a dart board and throw a dart at it and say, oh, yeah, we'll try that. That looks good. He sits down. And he says, I'm going to take all my knowledge, which is a lot because he's God. He's going to take all of his knowledge and all of his wisdom and all of his power, and he's going to lay out a plan. Now the greater the wisdom, the knowledge, and the power, the greater that plan is going to be. So when you take that to God and He makes a plan like that, guess what? It's really awesome. And it is absolutely, certainly guaranteed. And so He has a plan. And the outcome is secure. He has made the plan with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, this wisdom and understanding that made this plan, this plan now is made known to us, the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. In Scripture, mystery is not a secret code that we need to get our little magic ring and look at the Old Testament and figure out. Okay? There are books all the time about counting letters and syllables and all. That is not what this is talking about at all. The way Paul uses mystery is a truth that God has already planned, has always planned, and now it's being revealed. That's all it is. And Paul's looking at where he is in history and he's saying, I've learned something. I thought God was going to save us through the Old Testament. I thought he was going to save us through the tabernacle and the temple and by everybody just being as righteous as they could. But now I understand it's through Jesus Christ. And I understand that truth includes more than just the people I thought it would be. And this will of God, his eternal plan is according to his good pleasure. He's excited about can you imagine God being excited about something? Why is he excited about it? Why does he take pleasure in this? I imagine a craftsman, let's say somebody working on a statue, and they've planned and they've poured over it and they've, they, they, they lay out what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and they spend months and years agonizing over this statue. And when they're done, they step back and they say, yes, that's it. All of my abilities as a sculptor are seen in that statue. All of my wisdom and knowledge that I've gained throughout my life is seen in that statue. This is the sum total of who I am as a sculptor. This is it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are called God's workmanship in the NIV. The New Living says, Masterpiece. God looks at us through Jesus Christ and he sees everything he has planned. He sees how he has brought it about through Jesus Christ. He sees the future he has for us and he says, that's my masterpiece. What I have done for you in bringing you to salvation is the greatest thing I've ever done. That's how God looks at you. Can you imagine that? Can we even begin to picture that? So what is it that he's so excited about that he calls his masterpiece? At the end of verse 9, it says, we're reminded again this is all in Christ. And then verse 10, and it will be put into effect when times in the future reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth Under Christ. We're going to look at that phrase more next week as we look at God's eternal plan. But for now, I want you to see that Paul looks at a world that is divided by by ethnicity, Jewish and Gentile. He looks at a fragmented political world. He looks at an oppressive regime. And he says, God has a plan for all of it. And all of this will pass away. And he will bring all things to its perfect conclusion in Jesus Christ. So let's look back at the rope. This future that we're so afraid of that we don't know what's going to happen through this passage has just been revealed to us in Christ. And here it is. God's plan is going to be carried out perfectly. You will stand in His presence unashamed. You will stand together with other people and with all creation redeemed by Jesus Christ. So imagine this, pres- this rope stretches on to the farthest star known to humanity, which is about 13.1 billion light years away. That means if you were to travel at the speed of light, which I'm pretty sure is impossible, but if you were, it would take you 13 billion years to get there, 0.1. That's a long way. And if this rope stretched out that far, that would be just a fraction of the eternity in Jesus Christ that God has prepared for you to bless you moment after moment after moment and to have you stand in his presence. Think of the greatness that is ours in Jesus Christ. I said earlier that our sense of belonging comes with having many shared experiences. And so we see things on our life in our life that were profound and meaningful and, and we see somebody else that has the same thing and we think, oh, I, I can relate. Or we see a bunch of little things and we think, I can relate. So the more things that we can relate to, and the deeper those things are, the more a sense of belonging that we have. Now get this. God has taken you through Jesus Christ. If you've accepted him as your Savior, and he has said, you belong to me. And he said, every point of your life, every instance, I have redeemed. And I've planned for you. And so at every step along the way, we now belong to Jesus Christ. That is a belonging that goes far beyond anything this world has to offer. But it doesn't just stop there. Because now, when we meet somebody and we get together, it's not, hey, did your dog die when you were five? Me too. It's, hey, I'm a Christian. Somebody else says, me too. And we could say, Do you mean from eternity past God has been working up to this moment when he would redeem you and save you and work in your life and pour out his grace upon you? (gasps) Me too. No way. Look at what we have in common. Do you mean right now that you stand perfectly in the presence of God unashamed because Christ's blood has been applied to you and you're redeemed and you're bought back from your guilt? Me too. No way. Do you mean your future is held eternally secure in the hands of God and you're going to stand with Him forever and ever and ever and experience the glory of His blessing? Me too. And suddenly, people with whom we thought earthly we had nothing in common with, we have everything eternally in common with them through Jesus Christ. And our belonging is not based on some momentary shared experiences. It's not based on music preferences or geographic location. It's not based on how much money we make. It's not even based on our skin color. It's based on Jesus Christ. The sameness that can only be found in Him. And all those other differences find great beauty when they are wrapped together in Christ. The church is to be the people of this new belonging the people that by our lives, by our relationships with others, and by our relationship with those in Christ who are different than us, that become a living demonstration of this truth right here. My fear is too often we become a living demonstration of this. The same way the world looks at belonging and making relationships. So my prayer as we walk through this study Of Ephesians is that as we understand our identity in Christ we will then reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ that the world would say you shouldn't talk to them you have nothing in common we will say I have everything in common let me tell you about Jesus Christ let's pray Heavenly Father this is a profound truth that we have a new identity in Jesus Christ God, in so many ways, it's a truth that is so much bigger than what I think we can wrap our minds around. And I pray that my feeble efforts here with these ropes has helped in some way. But more than that, I pray we would dig into your word and let your truth inform us and change the way we think about ourselves and our identity, change the way we think about our relationship with you and see all of that as, as in Christ. And then, God, may that overflow into our relationship with others that we would see that in Christ we have so much more in common with people that may look completely different than us, have a background completely different than us, and yet their past, present, and future, just like ours, is defined by being in Jesus Christ. In whose holy name we pray. Amen.